Hello, this is Dr. Ed Hill, the host of This Week in the Word, where we grow in our knowledge of the Word of God and our walk with Christ. I'm glad you're with us today. We are in episode two of Revelation, God Rules, and the title of this episode number two is The Seven Churches of Revelation. We're going to be looking at the book of the Revelation, chapters two and three today. This is the episode for Sunday, January 15th, 2023. If you're just joining us in this series, I encourage you to listen to episode one of Revelation, God Rules, so that you can understand better the approach that we're taking. Well, as we mentioned last week, the Apostle John, who authored the book of the Revelation, which was given to him by the risen and glorified Lord Jesus Christ, That John, he was a disciple first and then an apostle and then the writer of the book of Revelation. That John was canceled by the Roman Empire. And you know what John did after he was canceled and put on the prison island Patmos, probably to crack granite and marble for the building of Rome. John canceled Rome through the book of the Revelation. Be careful who you lock up. A book may come from it. For example, when Martin Luther King was locked up in Birmingham, from that experience came letter from a Birmingham jail. When John Bunyan, a preacher of Jesus Christ, was locked up uh, several hundred years ago, from that experience came the classic Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. When the Soviet Union locked up dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn, (laughs) a great book came from that, the Gulag Archipelago, an earth-shattering book as far as the Soviet Union was concerned. Someone else was locked up by the German government. He had the name Adolf Schnickelgruber. You never heard of him, I'm sure. But from his imprisonment came Mein Kampf and he changed his name to Adolf Hitler. Now, I'm not saying it's a good thing that he wrote that book and everything he did. I don't mean that. But he told people exactly what he was going to do, and they should have listened, and maybe all of that in World War II could have been avoided. But of course it wasn't. Well, God rules, and I want you to know today that the book of the Revelation is about Jesus Christ in control, not the Antichrist in control. The Antichrist is a player in the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ is the king. Now, it's also about God in control, not government in control. You see, we have, as Christians, a God who wept, who bled, and who died, and who rose again. Our God rules I want to give you some authors and books that may help you in your study of the book of the Revelation. The first one is by the legendary author John Phillips. It's entitled Exploring Revelation. John Phillips is a great man of God. I had the privilege of meeting with him a few times in his ministry at our church. And I even visited his home with another pastor and we saw his library. Another great writer that explains things in very, very easy to understand terms is Tim LaHaye. 
And he has a book, I think it's entitled Revelation Explained and uh, I can't remember the whole title, but it's his expository book on the book of the Revelation. I think we're going to mention it again in a moment. Anything written by Dr. John Walford, the past president of Dallas Theological Seminary, is worth reading, especially his exposition of the book of the Revelation. The Bible study, inductive Bible study series by Irving Jensen under Moody Press, his study of the book of Revelation is great. K. Arthur of Precept Ministries. If you've never done a precept study where you break down a book of the Bible down to verse by verse, but more than that, word by word, try the precept study for the book of the Revelation. Precept Ministries is where you can get that. Of course, anything written by John MacArthur is great, and you can read his exposition of the book of the Revelation. For something I'm going to mention here in just a few moments regarding the uh, presence of demons on the world, in the world, E.W. Bullinger, this is an ancient book, E.W. Bullinger, Earth's Earliest Ages, that's a great one, and how we uh, war against demons who are warring on the saints. There's a book entitled War on the Saints by the author Jesse Penn Lewis, P-E-N-N-L-E-W-I-S, one of those English names. And it, it explains how demonic forces opposed the Welch revival at the turn of the uh, 20th century. You can read about that. Very, uh, very great insight there. So here's what we learned. The main thing, one, we learned a lot of great things in episode one, but here's one of them. The churches that we're going to see today, the seven churches and the church at large, they're his churches. They're Jesus's churches. He owns these churches we're going to see. He owns the church. He owns them. The Pope doesn't run the church. No ecclesiastical body or denomination runs the church. Jesus Christ runs the church. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus says, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As we read about these seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, I want you to try to keep this three-part application in mind. Every one of the seven churches we're going to see were local, real congregations, actual churches meeting together each week to celebrate their risen Lord Jesus Christ. They were real churches, and the message directed to them was for them as a real local church. They were seven churches in the western part of Turkey, kind of on a kind of a loop, a circle, circular pattern, so to speak, and it was a postal route of the Roman Empire. But they were actual real churches. 
but also, and I'm going to explain this as we go along, they offer a prophetic view of the progress of church history that was yet future to the time that the apostle John wrote the book of the Revelation. Most of it was still future to him. And so it predicts the flow of church history leading to the rapture of the church, the tribulation period, that 70th week of Daniel, when Israel is front and center stage, and God deals with Israel again to ultimately fulfill all of his promises to Israel that he promised to them, and then the triumphant return of the Lord Jesus Christ to take over the earth and what we commonly call the second coming and his millennial rule over his kingdom on the earth from Jerusalem. Yep, we're going to see that, and I'll show you that. When I show you, you never won't be able to see it again. And then, don't overlook this part. As we read the message to each of these seven churches, there is a personal application. You may feel the Lord zeroing in on you by something he says to each one of these churches, and you should pay attention to that. So it's local, historical, and personal. Now, in my studies, I had so many great things to read and study. I was so excited. But I'm going to quote several of these, and I'm giving them credit, so I'm not saying that I said these things. But I'm quoting them, and you can go check it out. You can see for yourself these things online. What I'm about to read came from South African Bible believers, the seven periods of church history. And this is so spot on, I just had to quote it. South African Bible believers, the seven periods of church history. These Bible scholars also discovered that the name of each church or assembly, Ephesus, Philadelphia, etc., is very significant. And then the sequence of the names and conditions cannot be rearranged. That certain names and events are either symbolic or require a future fulfillment not experienced by the assembly mentioned. For example, tribulation 10 days, and we'll see that in a minute, refers to a long period of persecution, but limited in duration and intensity. Thyatira's Jezebel is cast into a future great tribulation, and Philadelphia is to be preserved from this time of trouble. Although both, listen to this, this is a key concept, although both Thyatira and Philadelphia churches have completely disappeared. And yet what was said to them will be fulfilled. So it can't just be local because those local churches have been out of existence for centuries. The watersheds dividing church history into seven divinely ordained periods are, and here they are, number one, Pentecost, 
That is when the church was born, when God came to indwell his people by his spirit. Number two, the death of the last apostle, that would be John. Number three, Constantine's conversion. And that's under the idea of, you know, Rome as an empire. If you can't beat them, they tried to persecute Christianity out of existence. If you can't beat them, join them. So, so uh, the government got all inside the church and, and corrupted the church. If you can't control them, then corrupt them. Number four, the ascendancy of Roman Catholicism. This may be a shock and may upset some of you who are Roman Catholics or you have great affinity for those who are. Roman Catholicism did not exist until like, I don't know, the three or four hundreds, something like that. It was not the original church. It wasn't. It just wasn't historically. That's a fact. Here's number five, the Reformation. Number six, the full restoration of New Testament truths and missionary enterprise. We'll see that in the Philadelphia church. And number seven, this would be the Laodicean church, rejection of the Lord Jesus and his word. Now, doctrinally, Matthew 13 reveals the following pattern, and you, you kind of see this same pattern. Number one, the sower and the seed. Number two, the wheat and tares, that's false doctrine being introduced into the church. Number three, the mustard seed, that is unnatural growth and worldliness. Number four, the leaven, that's a departure from the truth because error takes over. Number five, the hidden treasure, discoveries of scriptural truths. Number six, pearl of great price, the Lord's name and word acknowledged that was in the Philadelphian age of the church. And number seven, the dragnet, separating the true from the false. We approach, I'm still quoting now, we approach church history from the standpoint of the progress of the faith. The faith, that's a, that's a, a thing, an article like the true doctrine of the Christian church. The faith is that body of truth embodied in the Bible, especially the New Testament, delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ through his apostles once unto the saints, according to Jude verse 3. Paul especially exhorts all the saints to, quote, keep the faith and stand fast in the faith. Continue in the faith. Notice the, the definite article, the, before the word faith. It's not talking about, you know, keep hoping and believing. It's talking about a set body of doctrine and not to depart from it or to deny it. The Lord Jesus said of the end of church history, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find the faith upon the earth? That's in Luke 18, 8. And again, in the Greek, the definite article, the, is before the word faith. 
So he's obviously talking about the pure faith, the set body of doctrine that he gave to the church through the apostles in the New Testament and, of course, the entire Bible through the prophets. Church history, then, is the progress of that faith, which, after delivery by the Lord, was vigorously defended and died for, but now, after 2,000 years, denied by large numbers, calling themselves Christians. Here's the seven periods of church history. Number one, the apostolic period from Pentecost to about A.D. 100, where the faith is defined. Number two, Roman persecution period, A.D. 100 to 313, where the faith is defended. Number three, Old Catholic period, A.D. 313 to 590, where the faith is disputed. Number four, Roman Catholic period, A.D. 590 to 1517, that's when the Reformation occurred, where the faith is defiled. Number five, the Protestant period from A.D. 1517 to 1795, that's the Reformation to 1795 when the faith is discovered. Number six, the missionary and New Testament church, that is Bible-believing, soul-winning churches, that period of church history from the start of the great mission movement, the father of missions, William Carey, went to India, I think that was 1795. So from 1795 to 1870, where the faith is discerned, and I, I would probably change that to the faith is dispersed. That is, it's spread all over the world. Number seven, modernist and ecumenical period. And that was from about A.D. uh, 1870, from 1870 until the Lord takes the church home, where essentially the faith, the true Christian faith is denied. The Lord Jesus who bought the church is denied just like he said would happen. Now, in Hal Lindsey's book, There's a New World Coming, that's his commentary on the book of the Revelation, which I'm sure I've read, but it would have been like 40 years ago, so I didn't consolidate for this. But I'm gonna quote his division of church history there, and it's essentially the same thing. The first period is the church in Ephesus, the apostolic church from the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ to about 100 AD. Number two, the church in Smyrna. That is the church under persecution, under the 10 Caesars from AD 100 to 312. Number three, the church in Pergamum, the era of church-state union. In other words, when the church was, was invaded by the government from AD 312 to 590. Number four, the church in Thyatira, the era spanning the Middle Ages from A.D. 590 to 1517, the Reformation. Number five, the church in Sardis, the Protestant Reformation from A.D. 1517 to 1750. 
Number six, the church in Philadelphia, the era of revival and great awakening from about 1750. That would be like the the preaching of George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers uh, unto about 1925. And then seven would be the church in Laodicea, the era of higher criticism, that is disputing and doubting and denying the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ from roughly uh, 1900 until the tribulation happens. <laughs> yeah, that's how the church is generally, the majority of it will be described as until then. Now this came from something I don't, I don't even know what it is exactly, but it came from a group or article called Food for Hungry Christians. And they mentioned Tim LaHaye in his book, Revelation Illustrated and Made Plain. And that is a great book. Tim LaHaye offers the following dates for the historical periods that relate to the seven churches of Asia. A.D. 30 to 100, Ephesus. It gives us the general state of the church in 96 A.D. when John wrote the book of the Revelation given to him directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. A.D. 100 to 312, the Smyrna church, the period of the great Roman persecutions. You know, Christians thrown to the lions in the Colosseum, burned at stakes and that uh, horrible type of thing. A.D. 312 to 606, Pergamos, the church settled down in the world. Like they, they got real cozy and at home in the world where Satan's throne is. You know, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the God of this world. After the conversion of Constantine about uh, A.D. 316, A.D. 606 to 1520, Thyatira is the Roman Catholic papacy developed out of the Pergamus state. Baalism, Baal is ultimately, when you get dig far enough, it's Satan, okay? Baalism is worldliness. And Nicolaitanism, it means uh, two words, conquer the laity, <laughs> Think about that. Baalism, worldliness, and Nicolaitanism, priestly assumption, that is, taking control of the church, conquer the church. As Jezebel brought idolatry into Israel, so Roman Catholicism weds Christian doctrine to pagan ceremonies. In A.D., 1520 to 1750, the Sardis Church is the Protestant Reformation whose works were not fulfilled. In A.D. 1750 to 1900, the Philadelphia Church is whatever, uh, meaning whatever church or Christian organization, but primarily churches, whatever bears clear testimony to the word and the name of Jesus. In A.D. 1900 to the present, Laodicea, the self-satisfied, affluent, wealthy church that is in need of nothing 
and it denies the word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Henry Morris in his book, The Revelation Record, and many other commentaries agree with the above dates. Now, you know, say, well, was it exactly that year? That's not the point. We're talking about eras and seasons of time. You get the idea. Now, listen, now hang in here because we're going somewhere with this in just a minute. Hang in here. We need to talk. Can we talk? Okay, about this idolatry thing, you need to understand this so that you get hit right between the eyes with what we're going to read here in Revelation 2 and 3 in a few minutes. So about this idolatry thing, it's not a bunch of superstitious, uneducated pagans doing what pagans do. You know, bowing down to totem poles and wooden idols and gold and silver and all of that. That happens, of course, but it's far more than that. Idolatry is supernaturally energized deception, not from God, from Satan, supernaturally energized deception linked with supernaturally ensnaring immorality. That is a deadly combination because it not only it not only feels good, it leads you astray and you will end up in hell following that. Now, let me explain, and this is big picture, big picture, all right? I can't go into the details here. I've done it in many other places on This Week in the Word, and you can go look them up. When I post this episode, there will be 219 free episodes that you can listen to. Listen to one a day, and within easily within a year, you'll be all caught up. Big picture, 50,000-foot flyover, okay, without the details. Lucifer, which we know today as Satan, the serpent, Lucifer, apparently the highest angel in heaven, or, or one of them, but he appears to have been, been the praise leader of the worship in heaven to God. He's created, he's not God, He's not equal to God. He's created being. Lucifer rebelled. Lucifer was cast down to the earth and he sought to create the fall of man. Man had been created in innocence. And Lucifer wanted to mess up God's wonderful creation of man and the universe. When man fell, he was promised a deliverer, the seed of the woman. This, of course, would be Jesus Christ. So Satan, not knowing who that would be, set out on a grand operation for the corruption of the human race. And I can't go into this now. I may later, but I'm still studying this. That seems to have involved corrupting, literally corrupting the human race 
with demons and women. And you see that alluded to in Genesis 6, trying to corrupt the human race so that no Messiah could come and Lucifer could continue to be the God of this world over people. Okay? Part of that whole thing was corrupting the human race through false religions, through idols, through demonic power. Now, I want you to know this. If you're worshiping an idol today, or you know someone who worships idols, they, whether they know it or not, are worshiping demons. Oh no, Pastor Ed, now you've gone too far. Well, I'm still within the pages of the Bible. Deuteronomy 32, 16 and 17. God inspired Moses to tell Israel this. They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrifice unto devils, not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. Say, well, that doesn't say what you said. Well, let me read 1 Corinthians 10, 7 and 8, and the case will be closed. 1 Corinthians 10, 7 and 8, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes, Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day, Three and twenty thousand. First Corinthians uh, ten, nineteen and twenty-one says, What say I then that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? <coughs> Verse twenty, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. That's demons, people. Verse 21, ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. All right, here we go. So I hope you fully understand everything that I've said so far. And I'm sure that that it's a lot to take in. Go back and listen to this episode again after you're done. All right, Revelation 2. This is going to be Ephesus, the loveless church. That's not in the Bible. That's my description. Ephesus the loveless church. This would describe not only the problem that local church was having, but it would be a phase of church history 
and it may describe you in your life and your ministry and service to the Lord. Maybe you're really serving the Lord really hard, but there's no love there. That's a problem, right? All right, but anyway, Revelation 2, let's go to verse 1. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. Now, the angel, we believe, is the pastor of that church. Or if there's a guardian angel of the church of Ephesus, he will make sure the pastor gets the message. I think it's the pastor. Under the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So he holds these pastors in his hand, and he's right there in the middle of those churches. We saw that in Revelation 1. Go back and listen to episode 1. Verse 2, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Now let me stop right there. I've been a pastor of three different churches, and I'll be the pastor of a fourth one if I can get a church that the Lord says this about that church. This is great, except we have verse four. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. One of the commentators I read pointed out that it doesn't say they lost their first love. They just turned their back and walked out on the Lord Jesus Christ. But Pastor Ed, they're doing all these great things. If we're not careful in ministry, we can do all the right things, but our heart's just not in it. And the Lord doesn't like that. That's very disrespectful and unloving toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse five, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. It's like he's saying if, if you don't get back to doing these things that are right from a heart of love and, and moment by moment communion with me, then I'm going to put your church out of business. Have you ever wondered why churches just seem to do well for a while and, and then they just, they just go out of business? They may even have the doors open, but it's like nothing's happening there. Have you ever wondered about that? This may be our answer. But the apostolic church was, was all over it, like white on rice and serving the Lord. But at some point, there was that danger, and apparently it happened, where they, they did all of the right things, but not from that heart of love. You may be like that as a person. 
as a Christian. Now he does have another word of commendation in verse 6. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's that idea. There's there's two or three ideas of what this means. But the, the word itself means conquer the laity. So it's, it may be where there was trying to be set up some great, you know, denominational hierarchy or religious system that made the preachers and pastors, you know, like elevated above the people. And I don't know, is it whatever it was, it wasn't good. All right. And Jesus hates it and they hated it too. Well, pastor, I didn't know Christians were supposed to hate anything. Well, here's one thing. You need to read the Bible more, all right? Now, verse seven, he that hath an ear. Now, by the way, let me point this out. When you read these messages to the pastors at the church that's named, you know, let's just say that pastor says, well, I'm not gonna hear it, or the church at large doesn't do it. That doesn't keep you from doing it, right? You can personally respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse seven, what, how do I know that? Because it says he, not the, not the entire church. Maybe you're the only one who hears him. Great, God honors that. Verse seven, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God, that is in the the midst of the garden of God. What a promise. So Ephesus had left their first love. They needed to get it back. And this described the apostolic church, I guess, toward the end of that era. It could describe people that are listening You need to go back to your first love for the Lord Jesus Christ. I would say a good step to that is getting into the Word every day, like five, ten minutes, an hour, two hours, whatever it takes, in the Word every day. And that'll lead you to prayer and get back into that communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. And every one of us, I mean, I can be walking with the Lord six days a week and fall out of that fellowship on the seventh day. We all need to keep ourselves close to the Lord. So that's Ephesus, the loveless church. Here's Smyrna, the suffering church. Smyrna is where modern-day Izmir, Turkey, is located. Now, there's no reproof for them, and you're going to see why. He doesn't find any fault with this church. This is the church, by the way, that is is you could call the persecuted church. Verse eight, and unto the angel of the church in Smyrna. And by the way, Smyrna is from the word myrrh. And the fragrance of myrrh is only released when it's crushed. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these things saith the first, and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. The word for poverty here means they were abjectly poor. 
even possibly looking for daily food. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. There was a large Jewish community in Smyrna, and they took especial delight, those, that particular synagogue, in persecuting Christians. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy, blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. The second death, of course, is hell. Now, I want to share with you a story, and I took this from EnduringWord.com, the, the wonderful, tremendous, interactive Bible study site for Bible students by David Guzik, a pastor and teacher. EnduringWord.com, highly recommend it. He wrote this. The year, now we're talking about one of the martyrs in Smyrna. It's a true story. The year after Polycarp returned from Rome, and he was the leader of the church in Smyrna, the year after, and by the way, one more thing, he was a direct disciple of the Apostle John. The Apostle John grounded Polycarp as a new Christian in the faith. The year after Polycarp returned from Rome, a great persecution came upon the Christians of Smyrna. His congregation urged him to leave the city until the threat blew over. So, believing that God wanted him to be around a few more years, Polycarp left the city and hid out on a farm belonging to some Christian friends. One day on the farm, as he prayed in his room, Polycarp had a vision of his pillow engulfed in flames. He knew what God said to him and calmly told his companions, I see that I must be burnt at the stake. Meanwhile, the chief of police issued a warrant for his arrest. They seized one of Polycarp's servants and tortured him until he told them where his master was. Towards the evening, the police chief and a band of soldiers came to the old farmhouse. When the soldiers found him, they were embarrassed to see that they had come to arrest such an old, frail man. They reluctantly put him on a donkey and walked him back to the city of Smyrna. On the way to the city, the police chief and other government officials tried to persuade Polycarp 
to offer a pinch of incense before a statue of Caesar and simply say, Caesar is Lord. See, they were all wrapped up in the Caesar cult and worshiping the Caesar. That's all he had to do, and he would be off the hook. They pleaded with him to do it and escape the dreadful penalties. At first, Polycarp was silent, but then he calmly gave them his firm answer, no. The police chief was now angry, annoyed with the old man. He pushed him out of his carriage and onto the hard ground. Polycarp, bruised but resolute, got up and walked the rest of the way to the arena. The horrid games at the arena had already begun in earnest, and a large bloodthirsty mob gathered to see Christians tortured and killed. One Christian named Quintus boldly proclaimed himself a follower of Jesus and said he would be willing to be martyred. But when he saw the vicious animals in the arena, he lost courage and agreed to burn the pinch of incense to Caesar as Lord. Another young man named Germanicus didn't back down. He marched out and faced the lions and died an agonizing death for his Lord Jesus. He marched out and faced the lions and died an agonizing death for his Lord Jesus. Ten other Christians gave their lives that day, but the mob was unsatisfied. They cried out, Away with the atheists who do not worship our gods. To them, Christians were atheists because they did not recognize the traditional gods of Rome and Greece. Finally, the crowd started chanting, Bring out Polycarp! When Polycarp brought his tired body into the arena, he and the other Christians heard a voice from heaven. It said, Be strong, Polycarp, play the man. As he stood before the proconsul, they tried one more time to get him to renounce Jesus. The proconsul told Polycarp to agree with the crowd and shout out, Away with the atheist. Polycarp looked sternly at the bloodthirsty mob, waved his hands toward them and said, Away with the atheist! <laughs> the proconsul persisted, Take the oath and revile Christ and I'll set you free. Polycarp answered, For 86 years I've served Jesus. How dare I now revile my king? The proconsul finally gave up and announced to the crowd the crime of the accused. Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. The crowd shouted, let the lions loose, but the animals had already been put away. 
The crowd then demanded that Polycarp be burnt. The old man remembered the dream about the burning pillow and took courage in God. He said to his executioners, it is well. I fear not the fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. Why do you delay? Come, do your will. They arranged a great pile of wood and set a pole in the middle. As they tied Polycarp to the pole, he prayed, I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I may receive a portion in the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ. After he prayed and gave thanks to God, they set the wood ablaze. A great wall of flame shot up to the sky, but it never touched Polycarp. God set a hedge of protection between him and the fire, seeing that he would not burn the executioner in a furious rage, stabbed the old man with a long spear. Immediately, streams of blood gushed from his body and seemed to extinguish the fire. When this happened, witnesses said they saw a dove fly up from the smoke into heaven. At the very same moment, a church leader in Rome named Irenaeus said that he heard God say to him, Polycarp is dead. God called his servant home. I found in my studies that that same day on Mount Pegasus, 2,300 more Christians were martyred. Now, when Cyrus captured Babylon, the Babylonian mystery religion leaders fled to, guess where? To Smyrna. There they set up sun worship, the Caesar cult, and eventually even the Pontifex Maximus of the Babylonian mystery religions operated in Smyrna. And that's where we get the popes, who is called the Pontifex Maximus. That came from the Babylonian mystery religions. Let's go next to Pergamus, the worldly church. Pergamus, their chamber of commerce, had a campaign and they called Pergamus, uh, literally, they didn't have a chamber of commerce, but they literally called Pergamus Satan City. So let's go to Revelation 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamus write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And some think, by the way, that that is uh, a temple to Zeus. And it really doesn't matter whether, as we see these, all these pagan temples and all that, whether it was Zeus or Apollo or whoever, ultimately it all goes back to Satan. You get it? Even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Antipas, the story goes, his name means against all, by the way. Antipas was, what he was doing was he was 
freeing people from demonic possession because that's they got possessed in the demonic idolatry. So he was arrested by the authorities because he was really messing things up. And he was told, Antipas, the whole world is against you. And Antipas said back, then I'm against the whole world. They ordered him to do basically the same thing that Polycarp was, was ordered, and he wouldn't do it. So what they did is they butchered him, literally butchered him. And then even though he wasn't dead, they put him inside of a huge brazen bull and they heated the underbelly of the bull with a fire and he was burned to death, praising God. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ honors him by name. Wow. Verse 14, but I have a few things against thee because thou hast there, uh, excuse me, but I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Here it is, what I said earlier, right here. To eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Wow. <laughs> there it is. It's totally spelled out. Pergamos is a worldly church where Satan's they're just totally in charge. Now, they tolerated this. They said, hey, let's go along to get along. Let's get along to go along, whatever the saying is. Verse 15, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. There it is again. And it's the same combination of Baalism and of Nicolaitanism. All right, now, here's the Lord's prescription for this church. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. That white stone would, could represent many things of being innocent in a trial, of some special privilege with your name written on that white stone, but the Lord says, this church is worldly, but the people who are trapped within it, if they will honor me and my word and stand strong, I'm gonna give them that hidden manna and that white stone and hang in there. Next, we go to Thyatira, the adulterous church. Now, this, this clearly describes the church when Rome was completely in control 
of the church, pretty much. All right, so Revelation 2, starting in verse 18. And by the way, what I've said, this is, this is exactly how church history progressed. I mean, if this isn't what this means, what an astounding coincidence. But I believe it's what it means. That's why it matches. And under the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. So they were, they were doing a lot of good things, all right? But then we come to verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman, Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, and he's talking about the Old Testament Jezebel, which introduced idolatry into Israel. By the way, in the Bible, women who lead in religion is always a false religion. All right? I mean, say, I don't like that. I'm just telling you what the truth is. So he's talking about false religion here is in charge. To and, and that that thou because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. That's the third time we've seen this in Revelation 2. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. Some commentators think this refers to the Black Plague, which decimated Europe during this same period of time. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. All right, now let's go into Revelation 3. This is Sardis, the dead church. There's pretty much zero good with this church, except that during this phase of church history, that's when the Protestant Reformation came, and then you had the for example, the mass evangelism and preaching of the Wesley brothers and George Whitfield. Otherwise, it's kind of a dead zone. Revelation 3, verse 1, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, 
that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Now, I said there was zero good. Uh, let me take that back, because in verse 4, there's, there's actually a good thing mentioned right here. But uh, over, overall, there wasn't much good. Let's say that. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, <laughs> which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. All right, the sixth church we see is the Philadelphia church. Philadelphia represents the faithful church. This is any church that's a Bible-teaching, soul-winning church that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no censure here for this church. It is characterized by modern missions, Bible colleges, the Bible societies which printed and distributed Bibles all over the world, the Sunday school movement, mass evangelism, you know, all the kind of stuff that modern culture hates, that's the church that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read in Revelation 3, 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. And I think that, by the way, I think we're still in to some degree where you still have Philadelphia churches right now. I hope you belong to one. But also we're, we'll see that I think we're in the Laodicean church age. But there's still remnant churches which love the Lord's word, love the Lord Jesus Christ, and try to lead people to faith in him. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, and he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. <coughs> I know thy works, Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Man, I can't wait on that day, amen? <laughs> Mainstream media. Verse 10, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. So there's something coming upon the entire world 
that this church will not be there to be part of. It doesn't say they're kept in it, during it, through it, with it, anything like that. They're kept out of it. They will be removed from this world by the rapture of the church. Well, which denomination is that, Brother Ed? We're not talking about denominations. We're talking about whether or not your church honors the word of God. I mean, really and truly, not explains it away. And your church loves the Lord Jesus Christ and you're trying to reach a lost world and save them from a coming hell eternally and the tribulation specifically. Do you belong to a church like that or do you have a church that you go to that makes fun of churches that are like that? Man, I'll tell you what, this is the church that will be raptured, that will be the Christians that are taken out of this world before the rest of Revelation unfolds on the world. That's the church you want to be part of. So he promises that they will, they will be kept from the hour of temptation. And it's going to come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. That's the earth dwellers. Verse 11, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Do you know that Christians who are like this and churches who are like this today are literally being made fun of by other churches? Did you know that? Even persecuted to some degree. Man, hang fast. Hold on to Jesus and his word. You're gonna win a crown and he is on the way. Verse 12, him that overcometh while I make a pillar in the temple of my God. That is, you're going to be like a permanent fixture in the temple of God in heaven. Amen? You will be at home there. Him that overcometh, while I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And unto the church of the Laodiceans, and this is the complacent church, the church which is lukewarm, the church which is ashamed of the Lord's word, ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, I would say in our day, they're the churches that are going woke and all of that. What a, what a travesty, what a shame that is. And you should be ashamed of yourself if you're the pastor of a church like that or you belong to a church like that. You need to get out of it because it's in trouble. You need to find yourself a Philadelphia-type church. So here we are, the, uh, the church that will pretty much describe most of the churches in the last age of the church, just before the Lord raptures a church and the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation hits this world. Verse 14, and under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. You know, all the things that the Laodicean churches deny, he doubles down on it right here. <laughs> Amen. 
Verse 15, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou work cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. This type of church today is nauseating to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Laodicea was world renowned for a, an ointment that could be used to restore sight and eyes. And he nails them right here. He says, you're blind. You need to get the medication from me to fix your spiritual blindness. That's what he's saying right there. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. You know, maybe your whole church won't listen. You can listen. And by the way, I think he would tell you to get out of that dead church and get in a Philadelphia church. Verse 21, to him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter. Shall they be broken to shivers even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I hope today in this very long episode that you have heard the Lord speaking to you personally, that you better understand the flow of church history and Bible prophecy. And maybe the Lord has even told you to get out of the church where you are and get into one that loves the Word, loves the Lord, and reaches people for Jesus. Listen, if you like this episode, please like it, follow the podcast, and share it with someone right now where you're listening. If the Lord doesn't come first, I'll be back next week with episode three of Revelation, God Rules. Bye-bye.